And we're learning about what faith is and we've seen why faith is so important. The Bible says it is. It says we're saved by faith. That's how you receive the grace that God had for you. Not only the faith, the grace that God had for you to save you, but every other grace, every other gift that God has for you, it's received by faith. We've seen that the Bible says that the just, those who've been made righteous, shall live by faith. So we're not just get into the kingdom of God by faith. We are to live our life, walk out our life every day by faith. I believe that's going to become more and more crucial, more and more critical in the days in which God has placed us here and for the purposes in which God has placed us here. We are to accomplish God's will in our life. Sometimes I think we have the attitude, well, if God wants me to do this and I say, yes, that's it. He does the rest of it. He's been graced by my accepting his call in my life. Now I've discovered that there's a wake-up call, if that's your attitude, and that you now have to begin to apply your faith to accomplish God's purpose for your life. So they just are, we're saved by faith, we live by faith, everything we have we receive by faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God, because in order to God, come to God you must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. So you cannot pray, you cannot come into God's presence, you cannot worship, you cannot do anything that interacts with God without faith. So it's important that we understand what it is, and then it's important that we understand how to operate in it. And, and we're, so we're just going back over some basic things. If you don't need to hear it, I do. All right? I need to be refreshed on this from time to time. Because you get, you get busy doing other things and you forget and we need to go back. But you notice I, I haven't forgotten to eat every day. <laughs> so the things that are really important to us, we remember to do. And so faith is really important to us. And so last week we went, we've gone, we started in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, which says, that tells us what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. We went through and broke that apart and saw that the purpose of faith is, is to be able to, to, re, to connect with a God who lives in a different realm of existence than our bodies live in. You are a spirit being. You, the real you is part of that realm of existence. So even to communicate with the real you, you've got to do it by faith. And so we've seen what faith is, and now we're beginning to see how it's applied. And we've, so we, last week we went to Mark chapter 11, and we saw a lesson that Jesus was teaching to his disciples. And so we'll pick up there. It's in verse... Um, well, we're going to go in verse 27. What we saw was that before this, as they were... Verse 20, they saw that in the morning as they passed by, they saw a fig tree. Oh, excuse me, we started in verse 15. We saw that Jesus on the way into Jerusalem passed a fig tree. We saw last week that the fig tree had leaves on it, but when he went over to the tree, it had no fruit on it, it had no figs on it. And so Jesus simply said to it, let no man eat fruit of you ever again. They went on into the city. When they came back out, the tree was dried up from its roots. Jesus was going to pass by. He wasn't astonished that the tree did what it said, he said for it to do. But Peter was astonished, and so he stopped, and he says, Master, the tree that you cursed, it's withered from its roots up. And we saw that it had to be supernatural. Even though it died when Jesus spoke to it, it would take days, maybe weeks, for the evidence of the death in the roots to show up in the leaves of the tree. But this tree was withered from its roots up. I kind of had this picture of it shriveled up and fallen over over on the ground overnight. So that happened supernaturally. And Jesus is now using this as an opportunity to teach them. So one of the things we saw last week is if he's teaching them something, that means there's something about what he did he wants them to know. 
So I say that because often what we do is we read these miracles that Jesus did, and we say, well, he did that to prove who he was. Jesus performed these miracles to prove that he was the Son of God. Well, first of all, all he has to do is do one. But if he's trying to prove by cursing this fig tree that he's the Son of God, then why does he have to stop and teach his disciples something about it? Because he's going to teach them how to do the same thing. So he must have cursed this fig tree, at least in part, as an object lesson to them of what they could do. Because one of his roles in the three and a half years that he was in public ministry, one of his roles was to prepare them to take over for him when he left. Because he was going to take what he was starting and put it into the hands of 11 men who had no clue what they were doing. They had no clue what happened. In other words, they were clueless. And Jesus was going to entrust the church to them. Well, and of course, the Holy Spirit. And that's where his confidence was. So he was teaching them to do some things that they were going to need to do in order to be the church. Then we asked the question, all right, Jesus was using this object lesson to prepare them so that they could go and do the same things. But then why is this story in our Bible? Unless God wants us to know what Jesus taught them so that we can go out and do the same things that Jesus taught them to go out and do. We see when we go into the book of Acts that Peter caught on. One of the things he did learn. Because when he went out to the gate beautiful, there was a man there who was lame from his birth. And he was begging for money. And Peter looks down at him and says, I don't have any money to give you, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus, I say to you, I say to you, arise and walk. In other words, Jesus spoke to his mountain. Peter spoke to his mountain and told it to be removed. We saw last week that... We saw before that Jesus starts this by saying, have faith in God. You need to know what your faith is in. It's not in you. It's not in how you pray. Your faith is not even to be, your faith is not to be in your faith. And I think that's where a lot of Christians are. They don't have confidence because they don't think they have enough faith. And Jesus didn't say have enough faith. Jesus said have faith in God and what God's like, and what God's nature is like, and what God's character is like, what God's disposition is like, and what God's ability is like. Have faith in what God's like. And then having that faith, now he's telling us to act on that. So what he says to Jesus' teaching the disciples is this. In verse 22, he says, have faith in God. Verse 23, For assuredly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that the things that he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. And last week we looked at who that applies to. Jesus tells us who this astounding promise applies to. Because what he's basically saying is, whatever you say, God's going to back up. That's what he says. Yeah, but, you know, that doesn't apply to me. Well, he tells us who it applies to, and that's what we looked at last week. He said, whosoever. So we spent last Wednesday night looking at what whosoever means. 
And whosoever means Jesus has said what God's going to do. Now it's up to us whether we receive the benefit of that. Just as we saw in chapter, John chapter 3, verse 16, when it comes to salvation, Jesus says the same thing. He said to Nicodemus, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And then he goes on and says, For God so loved the world. Who did he love? The world. For God so loved the world. In other words, God offered, paid for salvation for everyone. But not everyone receives the benefit of what God paid for and provided for. Who does receive it? Whosoever believeth on him. So God has a part and we have a part to play. And what we see that as for salvation, God's already played his part. It happened on the cross. God paid the price for the sin of everyone that would come to Christ. Therefore, it's left to each one of us to choose whether we're going to receive what he did. So we don't look out among the world and say, well, yeah, but pastor, not everybody's saved. So therefore, salvation can't be for everybody. That wouldn't make any sense. That would be foolishness, wouldn't it? Because we all understand. But, the, but pastor, the Bible says that it's only whosoever believes. Well, why is this any different? It's exactly what Jesus is saying. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, and the mountain represents anything that's in the way of God's will. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou taken up and cast into the sea. That's the King James. And here's the key. And shall not doubt in his heart. Your faith is in God, but your faith cannot be connected to God if there's doubt in your heart that what you said is going to come to be. So what Jesus is saying here is that this will work provided that when you say it, you do not doubt in your heart that what you said is going to come to pass. Now, a couple of key things to understand. Notice where the doubt cannot be in your heart. That means it's possible to have doubts or questions in your head, but it's what's in your heart. Remember, that's how you were saved. We saw last week in Romans chapter 10. Paul says that, that whosoever shall call up whosoever, there it is again, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For if we, if we believe in the heart that Christ died for us and we confess with our mouth that he's Lord, then we shall be saved. So the believing is in the heart and the activation of it, which we'll talk about later on, is with our mouth. Now the word doubt is an interesting word. That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to, the title of tonight's message is Without a Doubt. <laughs> because that's how you receive the moving of the mountain is when you, what you, when you don't doubt that he's going to do what you said. The word doubt is the Greek word diakrino, D-I-A-K-R-I-N-O. Now, there's a much more common word that's used for doubting. But this word is used here in the other verses we're going to look at tonight. And literally what it, may, it means is this. The root of the word is krino, K-R-I-N-O, which means to judge, to make a judgment about something or have an opinion about something. And dia, D-I-A, means between two. So literally what this word means is to form an opinion between two things. 
So in other words, you have two choices, and you choose one of them. We're going to see how that works in a minute. So what he's saying here, Jesus is saying is, Whosoever shall say, so we initiate it, unto this mountain, be thou taken up and cast in the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, or be of two minds about what he said. He shall have whatsoever he said. One time I was praying this over somebody, over a situation in someone's life, and I got a picture of this. It's like God was saying, Look at what I'm saying there. I'm saying this. If you will follow my instructions, I will back up what I said because my, it is my word. And what I saw is this. My responsibility, if I'm dealing with a situation, is to speak to it. And now the second responsibility I have is not to allow doubt in my heart about whether that's going to come to pass. And as long as I will not allow doubt in my heart, then what I have done by my words is I have connected God and all of His power and all of His authority to that mountain. But if I allow doubt in my heart about whether it's going to come about, I've unplugged from His authority and His power. As long as I refuse to allow doubt in my heart, that that's going to come to pass, then there is a divine connection between my words to to that mountain and and God's authority and God's power. And He can move mountains. He put them there to begin with. He can move them. And I did that in a situation. There was a friend of mine that was facing a life-threatening situation. And I've been praying and praying and praying, and I realized when I saw this verse, I wasn't really expecting something to change because the diagnosis that he had was not good and there was no hope in the doctor's diagnosis. That's a mountain. So I began to speak to that disease in his body. I wasn't even around him. I just every morning in my basement, I spoke to that disease. I said, I've spoken to that disease and commanded it to leave his body. And now, God, you are obligated because it's your word. You are obligated to remove that disease as long as I don't doubt in my heart that it's going to come to pass. So the battle that I was now in was to keep doubt out of my heart. And you can do that because you're choosing what you believe. Why can God command us to have faith? If faith is a feeling or an emotion and I can't do anything about it, I know, Pastor, some people are weak in faith and some are strong in faith. If that's true, then God has no right to expect us to be in faith. Because it wouldn't be fair to require all of us to be in faith if not all of us could do that. So if God's requiring us all to come to Him by faith and to walk with Him by faith, then we must be capable of doing it. So that's the beginning, is to accept that you're capable of it. Because if you don't think you're capable of it, you won't give a full try at it. Well, you'll try it, you won't do it. And you don't try walking by faith, you do it. And I'm going to give you an example of that before we're finished. Now turn with me to James chapter 1, and I'm going to show you another side of this principle. Familiar verses again. But God's astounding promise here is if we speak to something, 
And obviously it has to be in line with his will. But we talked about that last week. That's what the book's in your lap for, to tell you what his will is. James chapter 1. That's here something. Then God is bound to move the mountain. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God to gives to all men, to gives to all, how many? All. all. Liberally. That tells you about God. So if you're lacking wisdom and you ask God, He gives to all of us liberally. That means more than you need. But here's the condition. Oh, uh, but let, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. In other words, God's going to laugh at you and say, what a stupid question that was. God understands us. Without reproach, and it will be given to him. Verse 9, but here's the catch. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. That's that same word. And here's the example of it. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. So here we see he starts out talking about receiving wisdom. But he's using a basic principle here. He said, if you need something from God, what you do is ask. We spent a lot of time last year looking at that, where Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and several other places, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened unto you. But here's the condition, because now he's not just talking about asking wisdom. He says, if you ask anything of God, here's what you must do. You must, first of all, ask he knows you need it, but for some reason he requires us to ask of him. I think in part so that we understand he did it. Amen. Now let me show you why what we're talking about is, going to be, is so important. It's not just important so that God can meet your needs. Because God wants to do far more from you than you've let him do. You're limiting what God does for you. Not God. My Bible says he wants to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think. That's what he wants to do. But we give him the opening through which he can bless us and provide for us. But there's more at stake in this. Because we're here at this time because there's a world out there that's hurting and dying and going to hell. And they need Jesus, but they don't know whether he's real or not. But when you lay hands on one of them or you speak to some mountain in their life and that mountain that is removed and there's no other explanation but God had to have done it. Now God has become real to them at a level that's tangible in their life. When they see God did what you asked Him to do and they see the authority that He gave to you. But let, verse 7, but let not that man suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. Why? Verse 8, being a double-minded man, unstable 
in all his ways. I'm sure we've all experienced this. We come to church, we hear a message like faith or something like that. There's an issue in our life. We are now inspired and we go home and we take our stand of faith. Say, God, by the stripes of Jesus I'm healed or my wife's healed or what this is. And we take that stand of faith. And we go to bed full of faith. We wake up in the morning, we can't find our faith. Someone snuck in at night and stole it. And now you wake up and the pain's there. Or you go to look in the mirror and the growth is still there or you still feel it or you, the senses or you're sick or whatever it is and now your mind begins to say, well, that was just your emotions. And now you go from standing on God's word over here to beginning to leaning now over on your emotions and what your emotions... See, something's always talking to you. Your body's talking to you. Your mind is talking to you. Sometimes there's spirits talking to you. And the Word of God talks to you. And the Spirit of God talks to you. There are many voices, the Bible says, that are speaking to you, and none of them without significance. Why are they without significance? Because whatever you hear has an impact on you. Every thought that enters your mind is a seed. And every seed has its, as its purpose to produce the fruit that it was intended to produce. And every seed that comes to your mind is intended to produce some, produce some kind of fruit. And it's either going to build your faith or it's going to destroy your faith. So you go to bed full of confidence because God's word is still ringing in your ear. And you get up in the morning and it's not still ringing in your ear. You've dreamt or whatever. You know, you wake up in the morning and you don't even know whether you're saved. You ever wake up some mornings like that? Because that's how you feel. That's how you feel. Feeling and faith, the only thing they have in common, the only thing they have in common is they begin with the same letter. Actually, that's not true. They really are both the same thing. Faith is, having, faith is believing that something you can't see that's been said to you is the truth. Fear is believing something that you can't see, say, see that's been said to you is the truth. The only difference is what's been said to you and who said it. They're both, fear is, is believing something you can't see. Because fear is always in the future. Fear is what's going to happen. So you wake up when there's a pain in your body and, you know, you know, it gets worse and worse during the day and your mind starts running, telling, interpreting what it means. All you know is you've got a pain. You don't know what it means until a doctor's run a test and tells you what it means. And your mind's running ahead, connecting the dots, forming a picture, telling you what it means, talking to you, interpreting it to you. And if you don't recognize and do something with that, you'll begin to have faith in what you're hearing. Because faith comes by hearing. It depends on what you're hearing as to what you have faith in. So your body's speaking to you. Get up in the morning, you're, that pain's telling you, it didn't work, it didn't work, it didn't work. You're still sick, you're still sick, you're still sick. Now you've got to decide which you believe. Do I believe what my senses are telling me? Do I believe what my eyes are telling me or my ears are telling me or my body's feeling or do I believe what my wife is saying she sees? Do I believe what someone else is telling me when they say you look terrible or do I believe what God's word says? Whose report do you believe? And then once you choose God's report, don't 
move off of it. Because from that point on, the battle is to keep the doubt out. As long as you keep the doubt out, God is obligated to complete the connection between what he said to do and what you said for him to do. You provide that connection. It's his authority that's moving that disease. It's his authority that's moving that mountain. You don't have the power to do it. I didn't have the power to move that disease out of that man's body, but I knew God did, but I'm the divine, the connection between that God's word, God's mouth, God's power, and that disease in that person's body. As long as I will not allow doubt in my heart. I want to show you somebody that learned that principle. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Did I say 8? I meant four. I was halfway there. That's the glasses. That's right. (laughs) Only one lens was working. Verse 17. Now he's talking here about Abraham. And for background of those that you may may not know, some of you are newer, is when Abraham was 75 years old and his wife Sarah was 65 years old, God spoke to him in among, among... other things that God said to him, God said to him, God entered into a covenant with him. And Abraham's response to that covenant is, what do I get out of this? And his request was, I don't have a child that's been born of, of, of my body and my wife's body. All I have right now is in the practice in those days would you needed to have a male heir. And if you didn't produce one out of your own body, you would take the child of a servant, of a trusted servant. So he said, the only heir I have now is the son of Eleazar, which was his most trusted servant. And God said to him, took him outside and said, uh, lie down and look up. And it was night. And he said, see the number of the stars? He says, that's the number of the descendants that you're going to have. Abraham couldn't even believe for one child because he was too old. Not only was his wife too old, she'd been barren for those years that she'd been married to him. She'd never produced a child, and they were both too old. They had three strikes against them. But God said, God said, I am going to give you a son through your barren wife. Five years went along. Ten years went along. And Abraham and Sarah became impatient and figured out, God's just not coming through. We're going to help him a little bit. So what they did is they took her servant Hagar, and this was a practice in those days. They gave Hagar to, 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 to uh, Abraham to, for him to have relations with, and she conceived a son, and his name was Ishmael. And when he was of age, they brought Ishmael out and presented him to God and said, see what we've done. And God was not pleased. And God said, no, I said, I'm going to give you a son only based on the my promise being fulfilled, you're not going to add anything to it except the act of faith which you have to act upon. I'll explain that to you later if you need that. <laughs> but you're not going to handle this your way. 
that son's going to be born only because you believed my promise. And because you believed my promise, that son's going to come to you. Well, if you read the story, you'll find that it's encouraging because Abraham didn't just get into faith right away. He struggled in a number of ways, and so did Sarah. She even, they both laughed at God's promise because God came and reiterated the promise several times. But when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90, she conceived and brought forth a son. And this is talking about that process. Verse 17. As it is written, this is God speaking, I have made you a father of many nations. If you go back and you look in... Um, you go back and look in Romans, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 17. Before they'd ever conceived, that's how God spoke. He said, Behold, I have made you. Not I'm going to. But as far as I'm concerned, it's done. I have made you a father of many nations. And she wasn't pregnant. And at that point, wasn't capable of being pregnant. But God spoke ahead of time what in his heart he had already determined to do. And as far as God was concerned, it was a done deal. But they didn't have a child yet because there was a part they had to play. And we'll see that. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him, God, whom Abraham believed... God, who gives life... To, this is what Abraham believed about God. We looked in, Gen, in, in uh, Mark chapter eleven twenty two, and we saw Jesus that had faith in God. This is what Abraham believed about the God who made this promise to him. The first thing he believed about the God who made the promise to him is this God gives life to the dead. He can take things that are dead and bring them to life, like her womb. God is capable of taking something that was alive and has died and bringing it back to life again. But it gets better. Not only did he believe that, but he also believed that this is the God who calls things which do not exist as though they do exist. Not only can this God take something that's dead and bring it back to life but this God can speak with his mouth and take something that never existed and by simply speaking words cause it to come into existence that's the God that made the promise to me that I've chosen to put my faith in now look at the rest of this verse 18 who contrary to hope in other words all basis for having hope but in hope, he believed. So basically, where there was no reason to have hope, he hoped. He believed. So that he might become the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. In hope against hope, he believed, in order that he might become. Notice the order there. He believed God's promise in order that he might become what God had promised. So we believe God's promise before it becomes a reality to us. It was already a reality in the heart and mind of God because he said, as far as I'm concerned, I've already made you that. Now the other side of it is, what was that promise to Abraham? So we see, although there was no basis of hope, 
in hope, he believed. The word hope means confident expectation. So Abraham had a confident expectation that what he believed was going to be his. We're going to see, come back to that. Maybe not tonight, but we're going to come back to that. In hope against hope, you believe, you know what you might become, according to that which was spoken, so shall your descendants be. So here's the promise, and Abraham believes that that promise is true for him, because the God that spoke it is able to raise the dead, and he can, beyond that, he can call something into existence that's never existed before. Now get ready, because it gets better. Now look at verse 19. And without becoming weak in faith... He did not consider his own body. Now, the New American Standard says he considered his body because there are some old manuscripts that say that. Literally what it means, he came face to face with what his body was telling us and didn't pay attention to it. Now, when you're getting older, let's put it more mature, (laughs) your body at some point begins to talk to you and say, you know, you can't quite do what you did before the same way you did it before. You know, you begin to get evidence in your body that you're not 24 anymore. It's interesting because got, we got two 29-year-olds, and they're now starting to tell us when they play tag football with the 21-year-olds, say, Dad, I'm getting old. <laughs> All right, we better move on. He did not consider the evidence of his own body. Was it talking to him? Of course it was. Was it telling him? I mean, look, listen to the evidence that he must have been hearing. When he gets up every morning, looks at his wife, and looks at himself, and remembers their history. They've been married for years, and she's never been able to conceive. And now he looks at her, and he looks at himself and says, <laughs> In fact, at one point, God came and spoke to them, and Sarah went and hid behind the tent and just started laughing. Is he kidding? I thought you said it says he considered. This is, this is God's report on what they did. If you go back in Genesis, you'll see there were a number of times when obviously they were considering their own body. But there came a point when they grew in faith and they learned this lesson. Without becoming weak in faith, they, did, they chose not to consider the evidence of their body which was already dead, as far as producing children were concerned, since it was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So that was the evidence speaking to him, saying, no way is this going to happen. Look at verse 20. But he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. He chose what evidence to consider. The evidence he chose to consider is what God said, not what his body said. It's a choice we have. And when we choose to consider the evidence of what God says, see, that's why faith is the substance of things hoped for that evidence of things not seen. When we studied that verse, we said in order to believe something, you have to have evidence. You have to have something on which to stand on and have confidence in. 
And in most cases, what we look to have confidence in is what our senses are telling us. But when it comes to God, we cannot rely on what our senses are telling us when God's telling us something else. We have to choose to between, between relying on what my senses are telling me and what God, or what God's telling me. If I rely on what my senses are telling me, then I enter into doubt. I become double-minded. And God's Word says, I won't be able to receive anything from God, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Why? Because we keep going back and forth. I believe what God says. I read the Word. I believe what my body's telling me. I believe what God says. I believe what my body's telling me. You ever dealt with somebody that's double-minded and confused? It's going to be very frustrating. It can be very, it can ex- it's exhausting. And we can do that to ourselves. We can't make up our mind about something. I think I ought to do this. No, I don't think I ought to do this. I think I ought to do this. No, I don't think I ought to do this. You go back and forth. And the more you do that, you, your mind becomes spaghetti. You know what I mean by that? It's just all tangled up. It's a choice of our will, what we believe. God gave us that right and that ability. And here's an example of a man that exercised it that way. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead. Being hundred years, he did not waver in unbelief at the promise of God, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Look at verse 21. Being fully convinced that what God promised, he was also able to. To perform. Amen. I was meditating on that one day and it hit me. It hit me. How could he do that? His body's telling him, his mind is telling him, his thoughts are telling him, it's not going to happen. You're too old. It's not going to happen. She's too old. Even if you were young enough, she's barren. She hasn't gone in and had some procedure done. She's barren. She cannot have children. You're too old. It's too late. It's too old. It's too late. It's too old. It's too late. You're too old. It's too late. You're too old. It's too late. It's too late. It's too late. It's too late. But it dawned on him something about the God that made the promise to him. Because the God that made the promise to him can raise the dead. And the God that made the promise to him calls things into existence that never existed before. So on the one hand, you've got over here their bodies talking to them, telling them it cannot happen. It's impossible. On the other hand, you have over here a God who just with his words spoken once can create something out of nothing. What in the world, it dawned on me, does Abraham's body have to do when it comes to something God said who can call things out of nothing? Amen. You've got over here a God that literally said, let there be, and all that we know of the universe came into existence. They may be debating how and when, but we know where it came from. If, the, if there was a big bang, we know the big bang was, let there be. <laughs> Everything came from one word from that God. How in the world? 
can a 90-year-old and a 100-year-old's body be a hindrance to the God that said, let there be? What in the world do their bodies have to do with whether they can have a baby when God said, I'm giving it to you just because I said so? In a court of law, what we would say is that evidence is irrelevant. Because a higher, more relevant authority testimony has been given. God creates things with his words. And that's what Jesus understood. Because Jesus looked at that tree and said, let no man eat fruit of you again. And then he taught them to look at that mountain and speak to it. When you speak to something in line with God's will, all of heaven lines up behind your words with his authority and power, the same authority and power that created the mountain. The missing connection is you and me. John chapter 11. Don't turn there. Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. A man dead. Four days. Martha, I think it was, or Mary, I can't remember which one. As much as they loved Jesus and believed in him, they were getting nervous about what he was about to do. Because when he said, roll away the stone of the tomb, she said, by now, Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) And then Jesus turns and says an interesting thing. I was reading this the other day, and it grabbed me. He said, did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then he does an interesting thing. Unlike the fig tree, he talks to God. He says, Father, I know that you always do what I say. But for their sakes... I'm talking to you. In other words, so they'll know with this one, you did it. And then what does he do? He looks at that open grave. And he doesn't, what we would call pray, he speaks into that grave to a dead man's body. He what? He speaks. And he says... Lazarus, see he had to be say Lazarus because he didn't use Lazarus' name, everybody. In other words, he's saying, no, 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 it's not time for everybody, just you. I just want you now. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And if you read it carefully, 
it says, and Lazarus came forth. Listen to what it says. Things in the Bible, details are important. Bound head and foot. He didn't walk out. He was supernaturally raised from the dead and then supernaturally moved out and stood before them. Well, why is that so astounding? If God can raise him from the dead, why can't he take that alive corpse wrapped up and move him out? See, we do this. We think, oh, God did that, but how can he do that? God can do anything. He's God. And that's the God that says to you, if you'll speak to that mountain in your life, and you'll tell it to be taken up and cast into the sea, and as long as you don't doubt in your heart that what you said I'll do. Matthew 18, Jesus says to them, teaching them a principle. He says, whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven. Literally in the Greek with the tense, it says, whatever you bind on earth will be as if it had already been bound in heaven. In other words, God's already made up his mind to back up your words. It's all over the Bible. Jesus spoke to things. The disciples spoke to things. We do it, but we do it the wrong way. That, so, I can't get that bolt off this thing. We'll start talking to it. But we don't talk the right way. Talk to things. Link can tell you a story about time, just his untying his boat or tying his boat up. He had a thing that was tied up, right? It was snarled. And he spoke to it in the name of Jesus, and the thing just came undone. Oh, God. If you don't speak, it won't happen. God wouldn't do that. Well, you try to link that. Now, obviously, you have to combine it with other scriptures. You can't speak to things that are outside of God's will and things like that. But when you realize the authority you've been given and the responsibility that goes with that, you'll exercise it for God's purposes. For God's purposes. I mean, either this is true or it's not. Amen. And we talked last week about it. If this is not true, then how do I know that if I call upon the name of the Lord, I'll be saying, how do I know which verses are true and which aren't? So it's, to me, my mind is either all true or none of it's worth much. Amen. So if it's all true, then this is true. Well, but pastor, it's not working. Then maybe we need to look at why. Perhaps, is it possible that if you don't think it's working in your life, there's a key right there? Because he says, if you, don't, if you doubt in your heart that what you said is going to come to pass, if you don't think it's working in your life, it's working in your life. Because you don't think it's working in your life. We'll straighten that one out next week time. Not next week, but two weeks from now.